Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guests today are Sarah Glass and Eliza Cagle. Although they've never met in person, Sarah and Eliza have several things in common. They're both late-diagnosed neurodivergent women, mothers to their respective boys on the spectrum, and board-certified behavior analysts. Sarah has ADHD, and Eliza is autistic. They're also both members of our SkillCore alumni community. The Global Autism Project provides sustainable clinical, administrative, and leadership training to autism centers seeking guidance. SkillCore is an opportunity for self-advocates and professionals to travel to our partner sites around the world and work directly with their local teachers and therapists. In this conversation, we discuss Sarah and Eliza finding out about their diagnoses as adults, support and strategies to reduce sensory overload and improve executive functioning skills, strengths related to thinking out of the box and being hyper-focused on certain subjects, disclosing their diagnoses at work and requesting accommodations, how they talk about autism to their kids, personal and professional growth from volunteering with SkillCore, inspiring moments from our global autism partners, and advice for mothers and other applicants interested in going on a SkillCore trip. In this episode, discover what's possible when you get the right support. To learn more about Sarah and Eliza, please visit our show notes at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now, I present you. Sarah Glass and Eliza Cagle. Hello, Sarah and Eliza. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some brief introductions. Eliza, would you like to go first? Sure. My name is Eliza, and I am a BCBA in New Hampshire, and also, I guess, I'm neurodivergent. I was diagnosed with autism. All right. And Sarah? My name is Sarah Glass, and I'm a BCBA working um, in Queensland, Australia. And I was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, and it completely made sense at the time that I was diagnosed. And I was like, why didn't somebody ever figure this out earlier, and it completely opened up my world once I started getting the proper treatment. Great. Yes, we'll dive deep into that in a little bit. So you actually have a lot of things in common. You're both members of our SkillCore community, which we'll also talk about later, and you're also both mothers. So let's first talk about your different diagnoses. So Sarah, you said that you were diagnosed as an adult. What was that like for you? What prompted you to seek out an assessment? Actually, 
a doctor recommended it to me. Uh, to me. My son was going through an autism diagnosis at the time, and I tried to be so organized and on top of everything, uh, because that's a lot of parents know, when you are trying to get in neurologist appointments and go to all the different specialists to get the diagnosis, if you miss an appointment, that's like a six-month wait that you now have to have. And even though I had like a calendar and everything organized, I had missed his neurologist appointment, which thank goodness they were compassionate and they got me in like two months later. But I had put down in my book that it was at 2 p.m., but it was actually at 10 a.m. So other things had happened similar in this journey with him and trying to arrange these appointments until one day his psychiatrist said to me, does this happen often to you? And I was like, uh, well, yeah, one time I lost my keys for a whole week and they were on top of the hood of my car. Um, she's like, I think you need to schedule an appointment with me separately. <laughs> so that was when um, I went and got an evaluation with her and was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. It was much manage- more manageable um, when it was just me taking care of myself and my needs and school and, and those type of things. But when I had the extra difficulties with managing children and work and trying to go through that process of getting Colin diagnosed and getting him treatment is when I really just couldn't hold it together anymore. Mm-hmm. So you said that you are receiving support? So I take ADHD medication now. And one of the things that was the most beneficial to me was that I had started teaching executive functioning skills to students in middle school. And I will tell you that also improved my own executive functioning skills. And it really helped me with planning and prioritizing and time management and breaking down tasks and all the things that we want to teach our learners that are in school-age services. And that is really, that combined with the ADHD medication made a huge difference for me. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So could you, because we actually haven't really talked too much about ADHD on this podcast, could you explain a little bit how it might affect your life? Like you've talked about executive functioning. Are there any other areas and not just, you know, struggles, but like how does ADHD kind of make you who you are? I think very creatively and outside the box. And I always felt like I was more artsy. um, And I definitely enjoy the visual world and, and seeing things and looking at them just a little bit uniquely. When it comes to my social life, I always had lots and lots of friends, was very outgoing. The things that I struggled with were keeping um, dates. And for example, the first date that I ever had with my husband, I slept through, overslept, and almost missed our first date. So thank goodness he was patient and he scheduled with me for later in the evening. But that's just kind of a glimpse. When I was in college the first time around, I could not manage my time at all. I had gone to a Catholic school, which was so helpful because they're so rule-bound and orderly and you turn things in on time and things build up. But when I went to university, it was, you had a midterm, a final, and a paper. And if you didn't do well on one of those things and you didn't study and you weren't managing your time, um, you failed classes. So my first go-around with college was dreadful. And then I went back when my son was diagnosed with autism, um, but I had not yet started taking ADHD medication. And I remember working so hard in my classes and everybody else around me, these were um, classes that were on a therapy track. So it was like physiology and classes like that. 
I was spending hours and hours and hours studying and I was making these and I was really proud of my these, but other people around me were working much less hard. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what is wrong with me that I, I can't retain this information and I have to put all this extra work into it. And then when I was diagnosed and I started receiving treatment, I already had my bachelor's at that point, but I started taking BCADA classes and then um, BCBA coursework and a master's degree. And I'm not going to say it wasn't hard. It absolutely was. But it was like a completely different person taking those classes than had been working on a bachelor's degree. Hmm. can also imagine just giving yourself some more grace too and not questioning so much what's wrong with you, but understanding what you need to succeed in a learning environment. When I was in the second grade, my teacher told me that I was a type of student that needed a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, I was called ditzy, scatterbrained. I cannot tell you how many times I had teachers say, because I tested really high in all the standardized tests, they would say, you're so smart if you would just apply yourself or if you'd work a little harder. And it was like a slap in the face because I was working hard. I'm a people pleaser. And if there's something that's going to make someone say good job, I'm absolutely going to try to do it. But I just felt like I wasn't enough um, in most situations. So, hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Sure. A lot of people who get diagnosed as an adult talk about these feelings of validation, like these questions that are answered about what they kind of knew was different about them growing up. And so also finding like a community and other people who are also going through the same thing can help you feel that you're not alone. Yes, for sure. So Eliza, you were also recently diagnosed with autism. What was that like for you to find that out about yourself? Um, well, sort of in the same process, it was when my son was getting diagnosed and I sort of thought, oh, that's interesting. I meet a lot of this criteria. I think looking back now, the bigger answer, because there's sort of a laundry list of diagnoses along the way, it was actually seeing a geneticist. It was almost two years ago now, and he does genetics with like autism is his big research area at Walter Reed and getting diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos, which is a collagen disorder. And right now in the adult autistic community, but I'll also say ADHD as I'm also on ADHD medication, the correlation between collagen disorders, genetic disorders, and I guess like the neurodiverse population, I think in Sweden, they call them essence disorders and how there can be a lot of overlap within different disorders like Tourette's, autism, ADHD. And I think also realizing like as a female, how being like neurodiverse is going to present differently when you're female versus male and how people will see your presentation. One of my best friends has a daughter who went to go get tested. And she did end up with the ADHD diagnosis. But the reason they said it couldn't be autism was because she didn't have an obsession with trains or dinosaurs. And apparently that is a, 
a criteria to get diagnosed with autism. And if you don't, then clearly, and I'm like, well, that would pretty much eliminate all females from, not all females, but, you know, if you have an obsession with animals, like I did when as a child, you know, what are people going to say then? And so I will say that executive functioning is one thing that like, I think across the board with a lot of the neurodiverse, I do like essence disorder populations is pretty common. I think in any diagnosis, though, in the end, like looking at it from a behavioral standpoint, it's not so much the diagnosis. It's really figuring out what do we do now. And I think that once you get any diagnosis, you can sort of say, okay, what do I do now? What's the treatment? I think the scarier thing is feeling like you're floundering and not having an answer. And then just feeling like it's something wrong with you. And I think for so many adults who get diagnosed with anything, it's kind of how you feel. Like you feel like through elementary school, through high school, through beginning of college, that it's like you could be so awesome if you would just apply yourself and you're thinking, man, I'm applying myself. What's wrong with me? But no one ever helps you, really. So you're like just there floundering. And I feel like with any diagnosis, it's like, like, okay, wait, maybe I have an answer now. Now let me see what I do next. And it doesn't feel so much like there's something inherently wrong with you anymore. Like there's a solution to this. I don't know. I will say that ADHD and autism, if you look at them as a spectrum, um, there are some very big similarities. And when you were talking about restricted interests. I was thinking of myself in middle school and my weight. I was so obsessive about exercise and weight. And I know a lot of times people think of that as, well, that's an eating disorder. Um, But it wasn't that. It was the amount of obsessiveness that I had on, I had to do this many sit-ups and I had to do it in this way. And I had to associate it with, I used to do 500 crunches. I would associate each hundred would be a subject in my class and I had to get an A to be able to I think that there's a lot of overlap in some of those symptoms. So you get to a point where it's like, well, should I get further testing? But I think you're right. It comes down to what is working for you. And sure, you can continue to have other things tested if you think it's going to improve the quality of your life. But for me, it was such a huge change with getting that ADHD diagnosis that, yeah, sure, I could look into other avenues as well. But It just seemed to really fit. And I bring that up because I have one son that's diagnosed with ADHD. And we say he dances around the spectrum um, because there are so many similarities with some of the kids that I work with that have Asperger's. And should we go down that road? We've thought about it back and forth, but he's seen to the, the diagnosis that he currently has. The treatments are working. So there's no reason to further delve down that path as of now. Well, and it's like in the end, so many of these diagnoses are almost behaviorally based. And so I'm sort of like, diagnosis aside, are the treatments working? And if so, you don't need to change the diagnosis. And in the United States, I'd say the one thing caveat within that is that certain diagnoses enable you to get certain treatments. And so it's sort of like, what treatment do you think is needed and maybe go towards that diagnosis. Other countries, I'd mentioned Sweden, they just sort of blanket statement them, especially in children under the essence disorders. And they're going to receive 
similar treatments across, you know, it's more like work with your team of doctors, figure out what's needed. I think that in the end, that would probably, especially for children, be a better like way of diagnosing would almost just be like, okay, they're neurodiverse. They have some essence thing going on. Let's just see what treatments are needed at this moment and go from there instead of having to like go back to doctor after doctor after doctor to see like, okay, now treatment's not working anymore. Now what? That is such a good point. You're right though, that diagnosis does drive treatment. I was thinking more of from like an adult standpoint, but I could see absolutely how it would be valuable for younger families, especially to get that diagnosis so that they could access more services. But you're right, it's a shame that you have to do that. It really is. I think, especially up here now, I'm seeing so many, what I would call dual diagnoses of autism and Down syndrome, autism and fetal alcohol syndrome, autism. And I mean, you name it, the dual diagnoses. And I'm like, is it really that this is autism or not? What is autism? And it's sort of like, okay, in the end, it's become so broad, I think, to provide parents and children with these services. And it's why it's like become such a, I'm like, it's not a small spectrum. It's a huge spectrum. And yet I think so many people outside of this world still seem to think that it's such a small spectrum and they think of like TV shows or something and that is their perception of autism or ADHD or anything. It's like, yeah. So Eliza, are you, are you receiving any support right now or have you since your diagnosis? Support-wise, I think my biggest thing that has been the most helpful for me has been, I mean, I saw a therapist. We did a lot of ACT skills, which is common in the ABA world. ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy, just so people know. Yeah. Therapy (laughs) or training, depending on, yes. And then, let's see, I am also on medication Goodness, I take medication, ADHD medication, and then I'm on like essentially the Ehlers-Danlos trifectas, Ehlers-Danlos mast cell activation syndrome, and POTS, postural orthopedic tachycardia syndrome. A lot of like weird things that I would have before that were like seen as like I think more autism, like where I would avoid certain scenarios or I'd say like panic attacks, but that was almost like sensory overload for me have really been addressed with taking allergy medication. And essentially my geneticists explain that like when you have MCAS, you can have allergic symptoms to like stress or something. And so it's like by continually being on that, it's actually really calmed down symptoms of like getting overwhelmed during stressful situations and feeling like I have to be alone or that people like I say like the itchiness on my skin or like symptoms that like pins and needles, like things that, yeah, I guess like looking back now, it makes sense to be allergy type things. It That connection wasn't made. So I would say that medication combined with like behavioral interventions was the answer. Mm-hmm. Got it. Sarah, what are some of your strategies that have helped you recently? 
Um, so I recently moved abroad a little bit over a year ago and started working with a new company. And it was a big change for me, moving overseas and practicing ABA here in Australia. So one of the things that I did um, when I changed position with the company as well is that I started doing a lot of digital calendars and digital planning and digital notebooks because I'm across multiple sites where uh, my position is the senior uh, behavior therapist, so I'm doing BCBA supervision and case management, and it, it, it got to be really overwhelming, so I just stopped, and I was like, okay, I feel like I'm getting out of control. I need to reorganize and reorder things, so basically moved to all electronic notebooks so that I always have everything I need at any given moment as long as I have my iPad with me. I rearranged my schedule so that I had set appointments for BCBA supervision, and then I gave people days, uh, so Friday and Tuesday, um, where they can schedule in their one-to-one, but it's their responsibility, not my responsibility, and really started kind of delegating some of those tasks that I was kind of micromanaging. How about at home? I have an amazing husband and I'm super lucky and I can't even talk about it home <laughs> because I hold it together really, really well at work and he definitely picks up my slack at home. So he'll say things to me like, oh, you didn't take your uh, pill this weekend, did you? That'll <laughs> be just a little gentle reminder that maybe I need to move it along a little bit in the uh, grocery store or whatnot. But now he's super wonderful and, and he's very, very helpful. That's great. So I, I tend to hyper-focus too, where I will get caught up in minute details that I want to fix. For example, if I have an FBA due, I may stress about the type font and the organization of the paragraph that it needs to be in a, in a APA style or whatever. And before you know it, two hours later, and I haven't done anything except arrange what this paper is meant to look like. So instead of like chastising myself for that and shying away from that, I will schedule times in the day that if I'm starting to feel stressed or overwhelmed, that I'll work on organizing my email for 15 minutes. And that helps me then be able to feel good about what I'm doing and then continue on with my day. And yes, I realize that's ridiculous, but it does help. (laughs) Well, it's about knowing yourself and knowing what you need. I found that for me, specifically in high school and college, to quote unquote, fix the hyper focusing, I almost would procrastinate until things had to be turned in at the last minute, because I typically if things had to be turned in at the last minute, my brain was so focused on just getting it done, that I wouldn't sit there and hyper focus for hours and hours on things that didn't matter. But what I found similar to you, like I almost just set timers and try to put in almost that like contingency of like, let's get as much done as quickly as possible so that I don't do that because I will. It, and it's crazy like how you could be like, how did I only, how did I spend three hours on a paragraph or a page? At the same time, it's also not wise to be at the last minute and be like, okay, now I have to finish this whole paper in three hours because that creates a lot of stress. I cannot do that because I found that I'm overly optimistic in what I think that I can accomplish. (laughs) So I've gotten burned (laughs) on that way too many times. Yeah. 
So it's like, it was like this double-edged sword, like I'm not going to be able to write it unless it's the end. And then when you're overly <laughs> optimistic or you keep procrastinating and then it's like, oops. So. Mm. so Sarah, you've talked about your ADHD giving you more of a creative perspective on life and out-of-the-box thinking. Eliza, what are some of your strengths related to your autism? Hmm. I would say one of my strengths would be like when you're looking at hyper focus, I would say also that it's like this ability to concentrate in one area, but really become an expert at something. You know, I was in the military when I was 18 and was a linguist. And I think it takes a certain type of brain to be able to spend eight plus, 10 plus hours learning a different language and just being able to focus on one thing. And I think a lot of people would drive them crazy, but I do think both autism and ADHD, like I'll say that like that was a group of people who were probably all neurodiverse just because a lot of people can't handle learning one thing for 63 straight weeks. I think how I make connections is different. Like I feel like I see things slightly differently from other people. It's neither good nor bad. It's just different. And I think when you have different perspectives on things, you come up with better answers as a group. Yeah. So I, I talked about um, being able to hyper-focus and make things look really pretty and unique. My brother designed my website, but I did a lot of the graphics. I did a lot of the marketing. So I definitely have that creative edge. The other thing is when I was in the States, I worked with a lot of school-age students. And middle school was my jam. It was one of my favorite groups to work with. And I was teaching executive functioning skills. And I think... The reason why it worked, because I absolutely knew where those kiddos were coming from, and um, I was able to relate to them on that level. Some other things are, I I did mention about that out-of-the-box thinking, but I can look at a given situation, and you might have a group of BCBAs that would see one thing, and I'll be able to pick out something that doesn't seem like it's relevant, but it absolutely could be, which is a unique skill. Sometimes I'm absolutely wrong though, and it does not relate whatsoever, but sometimes, you know, it it, it does. The other thing is when it comes to working with other staff members is I think because I was diagnosed so late and because I know I have ADHD and I do forget things a lot, in a lot of situations, I assume that I misunderstood something or that I'm seeing it from the wrong perspective. And I don't mean that as a negative thing, but it makes me very humble in that approach. Whereas other times I've seen other people that might react differently to things, but when you're always looking at the approach of maybe I just missed something, maybe I, you know, am not catching something and you ask more questions, it's really helpful. And yeah, it's really good for, also I never really got really rigid about some of the BCBA rules that you see in those big Facebook debates, because I'm always thinking of, well, there's situations where that absolutely doesn't apply. And maybe it would be the way that it would be if you were in a clinical setting or in home, but that certainly isn't what it looked like in a school-based setting. So I think that the while I might be rigid in some of my ways that I do things so that I don't forget things, I am not rigid in my practice at all, and I'm always open to new ideas, and I always want to learn new things. So that is, I'm very grateful 
that I have ADHD for those reasons. Got it. I would say that in our profession, as you said that, I see a lot of rigidity at times where I'm like, it seems like you're doing things exactly how you were taught to do them in the same clinic that you've been working in for however many years. And that is one thing that I feel it's like, I'm willing to look at something and be like, is this the answer? Is it something else? So Absolutely. Bring the analysis back into the behavior analysis. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love to talk about your experiences in the workplace. And it's interesting, you're both BCBAs. So you are, you know, serving people who you can really relate with. So I guess first, do you disclose your diagnoses to your colleagues or clients? I haven't in the past. Lately in the past year, there's been a big push at the current clinic I'm at. There was a big push for talking about neurodiversity and autism awareness. And because other people were disclosing, I realized that like as part of being almost a leader, it's saying, okay, here's my diagnosis. But it's also, I feel like it's easier. Like if I'm a new person, I am a new person up here and I'm going to go into a treatment plan and say, okay, we're going to take out like goals for behavior decrease that is targeted at for like something like um, stereotypies or stimming. And for me, just because, you know, yes, I figured out a way to do it. So it's not so obvious that having complete stereotypy decrease down to zero makes no sense to me. (laughs) But if I'm going to say that, I feel like I have to be like, okay, so let me like from a personal level, I can say it makes no sense whatsoever. And it's a lot easier to explain that to someone when you're like, I have stereotypies. I, you know, could be thumper with my foot and I've figured out ways to not look like that or not flap my hands. And that sort of goes along. I, th- I think masking has been discussed before, you know, when you're a child and people are constantly telling you to stop moving or stop moving your hands or stop moving your feet. But yeah, so things like that, it just becomes easier, actually, from what I found. So Rachel, full disclosure, Rachel and I were on a skill court trip together. Um, We were in the Netherlands. And when you are leading, I was a team leader. And when you are leading a group of adults in a country you've never been to before, you absolutely need to disclose that you have uh, ADHD. (laughs) And I would have uh, somebody, my backup person, to make sure that everybody was awake in case I had overslept because that's definitely happened where I didn't set my alarm properly. I always had a backup navigator when we would um, take the trains because the first time I went to the Netherlands, I accidentally bought everybody train tickets to Paris. Um, (laughs) So there, yeah. yeah. So yes. um, Would I disclose it to a parent? I think it would depend on the level of interaction we were having. Most likely not in the first couple times I met them, but if I needed to, kind of explain something, I wouldn't shy away from it. But I also do feel that when I am talking to parents, especially for students that are in school-based services that have more ADHD symptoms themselves, when I talk to parents about my experience and tell them this information for the reason of 
this is why I'm doing things. This is what my experience was. And this is what I find helpful. I think this will also be helpful for your child. That's really the only time that I would disclose that information to a parent. One place I found, I guess, parent-wise that I would possibly make the disclosure, and again, it depends on how the relationship is going, is when you're dealing with children who are getting older and are starting to deal with things at more of that school age level. And the parents are unsure, like I've had parents who are unsure whether to disclose to the child themselves, whether they have autism and what that means, but the child is vocally expressing that they feel different. They see things and it's like that discussion of what should you disclose? What shouldn't you disclose? But it turns to them almost very personal. And so it's like, I could see connecting them with groups, but it could also, if you're part of that group, it's like full disclosure, I am in that group or something, you know, take from that what you will. But I think that is one area as you get kids older in clinics that that could happen. Sarah, did you, well, I guess both of you have kids on the spectrum. So what was that like for you guys to explain to them? Well, my boys are much older. So Talon is, he did clinic-based services for a long time. And we have talked about it um, since he was very young. I, I remember buying a book for him and his brother that we wrote together uh, about a little boy that had autism that I got at ABA one year. And we always talked about it, but we always talk about all the positives. We are always looking at strengths rather than talking about it as a disability because I I don't believe that it is. Yes, there are some things that are challenges for him, but we all have challenges and our family just looks a little bit different. I would say that we were similar. Like we always talked about autism, but it was more in like a strengths focus. Like you think about things differently or your brain is a little different, but that doesn't mean good or bad. It just means different. And that, you know, you'll always have strengths. You'll have things you need help on. The biggest thing is to keep keep lines of communication open and to just discuss where you need your help. Have either of you requested special accommodations at work? And how have your colleagues responded? When I first got diagnosed and I told my boss, she was like, well, let me know if you need accommodations. And I was like, are you kidding? I've been doing this for how many years? I don't need a different accommodation. Um, but I will say when I was in grad school, I did let them know. And the accommodations actually made things so much worse because I was in a program that you were supposed to be able to do as an adult, taking two classes at a time. And it was supposed to be for working adults. And the amount of work that they expected you to do with just one class alone was, I don't know how anybody could manage without extreme difficulty. Like I wasn't sleeping. I was just working constantly. But when I did request accommodations after I started being really overwhelmed, the accommodations that they gave me were absolutely not helpful because they just gave me an extension on when to turn the papers in. But I had all these ongoing assignments that just built and built and built. So having an extra two days to turn a paper in was not helpful at all because Everything was due on Sunday for your final papers, and you had to write a six to eight page paper per week. But then by Wednesday, you had discussion papers. And the hard time that I had about it, it wasn't necessarily the writing part. 
it was reading all of the assigned information um, because we had to read multiple chapters in different textbooks. And then we had to read three journal articles typically. And then you would have to do these conversation pieces. And when you replied, you had to reply with information from a different journal. So it was a ton of reading and the writing itself wasn't bad. It was just trying to get all the reading in by that mid-Wednesday date for those discussions. So it, the accommodations in college did not help whatsoever. It actually made it much, much worse. And sorry, that was a very lengthy explanation, but it still frustrates me to this day. Yeah. I always felt in college at times that I'm like, man, if only they'd take some of the things we were learning and apply it to the courses itself. Like a part of me is like, man, what are we testing? Are we testing executive functioning skills here? Are we testing knowledge of the actual thing? And sometimes I felt like it was. It was more a test of how organized and able are you to complete XYZ in a specific date. And yeah, God forbid that you're even a little bit late or, and then the extension, okay, two days extension really is that all that much, as you said, it's really not. It was just finding the journal articles that were relevant that, that spent, that took me so much time because again, hyper-focused trying to find the perfect article. (laughs) So. Mm. A part of me wishes I could have received readings like, that there was like a month space in between classes or something like that, but that we were provided with all the readings way ahead of time. So that in moments of like, okay, it's Christmas break or something, there's nothing going on that I almost could have previewed things and known what I was getting into. Like even just getting the syllabus a lot ahead of time, like just so that I could have organized it out. I don't know. That's a really great point. Like if they would have let me know, okay, you're going to need to read all this material in this amount of time. And instead of taking a two week break, like everybody else, if I would have just been able to break it down a little bit and read a couple of those articles at a time and not felt so stressed, probably would have learned a lot more. That being said, I did do well in college in my grad school program, but I will say most points that I ever got reduced for, it was because I had things turned in late. Mm-hmm. I would say college in general compared to high school. High school, I got dinged a lot for things being late or not turned in. Whereas I feel like college, it, in general, as long as you got your papers turned in and you did well on the exams, you were going to get a decent grade. So, Is there anything that you guys wish your colleagues at work would know or understand better that could help you in the workplace? Um, I think it would be nice for people to know because sometimes I come off a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) Overly pedantic, maybe would be what I'm looking for, Um, where I have like a very set way that I do certain things or I'm really strict with my schedule or things like that. But knowing that it's not because I'm a rigid person, it's because I'm afraid that if I don't, all things are going to crumble. Maybe that, that would probably be helpful. I think sometimes for me, I can appear rigid, if that would be the correct word. I think sometimes I I talk very much like I know something or I don't know something. And I'll typically own if I don't know something. 
I wish sometimes that people, maybe I have to somehow vocalize it differently, that I'm always open to change and that I'm constantly learning and I don't know everything. And that, yeah, I'm not rigid. Sometimes it's just like that is my comfort zone of like, I like to feel like there is some semblance of control when I'm doing something, but that I'm also open to change. So, Okay, ladies, let's switch topics and get into Skillcore. So which partner sites have you visited and when was your trip? Sarah, do you want to go first? I think you are the most veteran out of all of us here. Sure. I have been to the Dominican three times. So I've been to Apprendo and ACAP. Um, so three times in the Dominican. I was actually meant to go to Ecuador this last trip, but we had to reschedule that trip. And I ended up going to the Dominican, which let me tell you, I didn't find out where I was going until I landed in New York. So that was definitely a test of flexibility, but it worked out well. And then I've been to the Netherlands twice and I've been to the Czech Republic. I went to Ecuador in July 2019. I was supposed to go to Kenya in February 2020. Well, actually, it was China originally at the Leadership Academy that I was supposed to go in February of 2020, which quickly changed to Kenya, which then was canceled. So, yeah. And then, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of travel since then. Yeah. Well, applications are open for 2022. Yes. So we're looking forward. Sorry, we're not allowed to travel in Australia right now. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. Well, what's a moment from working with our partners that surprised, inspired, or moved you? I loved going to the Netherlands because Catherine is also a mom of a child on the spectrum. And the reason why she started her center was for her son. And I felt like she and I bonded a lot. I enjoyed while I was there uh, helping them come up with some different uh, curriculums and different methods of instruction because her learners were starting to move uh, to the school age and they were going from more one-on-one to trying to work in small groups. So that was really fun and exciting. I also really loved that she let me do a revamp on the therapy rooms and reorganize them, which just made me very happy. But yeah, that is a great center and very much enjoyed being there and seeing what it's like because Catherine is a mom. She's not a practitioner, so she has to rely on really competent, really smart BCBAs, which she has a great, great team of. But yeah, it's a wonderful dynamic in that center. Yeah. I think for me, just seeing the, I think motivation is the right word, or involvement of families in treatment when I went to Ecuador and just how much the whole community, like it was like the clinic just really promoted community that I did not see as much in clinics in the United States where it was very almost like medical, whereas it seemed like there they were really promoting like this community bond, which was really amazing. Yeah. Mafer is really good at kind of encouraging parents to step into sessions. And yes, I think that actually showed a lot when the pandemic hit, how quick her parents were to, you know, support each other and to make sure that kids maintain their skills. 
without that community engagement, I don't know that that could have happened. And I don't think it happened in a lot of clinics here stateside where it was like it hit. And I feel like a lot of parents just felt almost abandoned both by the school system and by the medical system. So one of the things that was really cool about the Czech Republic is they were working on um, a poster presentation for ADR and they have very limited resources and the amount of time that they're able to have their children in sessions. So what they have done was they created this opportunity where parents were able to sit into sessions. They were actually required to sit in sessions and to be able to continue to send their children to the clinic because most of the kiddos only got four to six hours max per week. They had to submit videos from them doing therapy sessions at home, which I thought was a great way to stretch resources that are very limited and increase the amount of parent engagement. And plus, I'm sure you guys both have experienced this yourself, whether you're working in school or you're working in a clinic. Things can look very, very different at home, and bridging that gap between the two made a huge difference for a lot of those learners. Yes, absolutely. So how have you guys grown personally from doing Skill Core? I think for me, maybe really feeling more confident in my abilities. And I think while it promotes being humble, it also really promotes confidence and knowing that you can find answers or work with other people to find answers. And that is like hugely beneficial and like feeling like, okay, I can do what I do. And I have those strengths. So personally for me, I find myself sometimes chanting, if I could lead a team of people across the Dominican and I don't know where I'm going, I can do this. Or I'll think about something <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. or I'll think about something that was challenging on a skill core experience and, and then just use that as like a reminder that I can do anything that I put my mind through. And maybe uh, the journey will take a little longer, but I will get people there, you know? I would say, um, I call it catastrophizing. In the past, I was really good at catastrophizing and I still can be. Um, My mind can go to great places of what potentially will happen. I think Skillcore really makes it so like you can have these stories in your head, but you quickly realize they're just stories because it's this constant test of like, okay, we don't know what's going to happen in the next few hours. And we could catastrophize, but it's never as bad as what the story is. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny how, you know, people have an idea of what their experience going on a skill core trip might be like. And there's just something so magical about being put on a trip with complete strangers for a couple of weeks and kind of being forced to live together and just get to know these people and work together and collaborate and everything that you surprise yourself at the end of it, you know, and sometimes like it'll show up in another area of your life six months later. You're like, oh yeah, that's because of that skill core thing that I did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of the trips that I was on, um, and I was leading this trip, I was on a team of 
all introverts. And that was the most personally challenging trip that I have ever been on because I know that I'm very outgoing and loud and bubbly. And I was trying to be respectful of the meeting downtime in their personal space, but it was killing me. Mm -hmm. But I do think about that time as well, where it was really awkward for me. It like felt yucky on the inside in some moments, but those people that I was on the trip with are some of my favorite people from Steelcore and I still message all the time and think very fondly of that team. How many trips have you led, Sarah? Um, three and one LIT. Okay. And Eliza, you just did our big leadership academy in Texas last January, two Januarys ago. Yes. And I was supposed to do my LIT in February. So yeah. Leadership and training. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more of an introvert. I think like when you take all those personality tests, I'm like an introvert, extroverted personality, but it's, it's funny because it's like, I don't mind extrovert. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, the introvert versus extrovert. And I think that no matter what you are, people tend to judge themselves or feel uncomfortable in certain situations and just realizing like, maybe it's not that bad or... I will say that being with a lot of extroverts, sometimes they'll be like, man, am I not talking enough? Or I don't know. See, I, on the other hand, feel like I'm always talking too much. So (laughs) you and I should do a trip together. We balance each other out. (laughs) (laughs) So how have you grown professionally from doing SkillCore? What have you taken from our partner sites and applied in your own practice? In more of a broad sense, I think one thing that is really good for anybody thinking of going is in our field in general, and I can say this like, you know, I was a military spouse, and so I have moved to many different states, and I'll say even stateside that each clinic or organization or school I've worked with has done things a little differently, but yet I see people who almost, the idea of a homegrown BCBA is very prevalent from what I've seen stateside. But to me, what that also means is that people see only one thing and they think that's how it's supposed to be. And every time you travel or you see different clinics, even so Ecuador has two clinics or had that we saw in 2019, we went to the Guayaquil and then the Manta site and that each location is going to be different and have different strengths and that you can learn from each person that you're working with. Even on the teams, it's like working with speech pathologists, working with different PCBAs and seeing what different assessments they're using or what their clinics are doing. Like, It's like, oh, wait, things can be done differently. So I literally could talk about this all day. I feel like the biggest improvement I've made in my own clinical practice has been what I work at Stillport. Not necessarily specific techniques, although that's part of it, but the analysis that goes into behavior analysis for sure. Being on a team with people from all over the country, like you had said, you different regions have different styles and types of ADA they do. And just learning from my teammates and then seeing ABA done through a different cultural lens completely, it made a huge impact on my practice. Also, I have this network of people that are all amazing and they all have different strengths and specialize in different things. One of the girls that I was on a trip with, 
She was working with people with um, traumatic brain injury. Another girl on a trip that I worked with, she was starting to specialize in animal training for animals that were abused. I've worked with some really amazing species that are doing amazing things with AAC devices. That's not my area of expertise. So as soon as I have a question, that's who I'm calling. (laughs) But um, even I think some of the biggest things are in the soft skills that you learn, um, like the Socratic method. That's really improved the way that I communicate with families and the way that we develop goals with the team by doing that Venn diagram approach um, where you're really pinpointing the things that everybody's on board for and they're the things that need to be done the most first rather than just going off of some assessment and, you know, some cookie cutter curriculum. I think my ability to work better, to develop better goals, to work better on a team, to work better with families and improve my skills in the field itself. Yeah, I saw PECS for the very first time when I was at the Dominican, like being run properly. I had, the clinic I came from used PECS. They just didn't do it right. <laughs> so definitely have, have learned some. Picture exchange communication system. Yes. Actually, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what were some of these practices that you saw from a different cultural lens? Um, so in the Dominican, for example, a lot of the learners were, they had programs for tolerating different foods. And the reason why they did was because in the Dominican, the stigma of autism was much higher than in the States. So because they have such a big extended family and a lot of the community involvement revolves around being in these large groups with the family, they wanted children to be able to sit with the family and be able to eat the foods that were presented. So Every single kiddo, I say kiddo, I apologize. Every single early learner that was in the clinic had some type of feeding program that they were working on, whether it was expanding the food choices that they were eating or sitting at the table or using utensils, where in the clinic that I had come from, we may have had a few learners that that was a priority in a program, but it was really the most extreme cases rather than that being the norm. And a lot of times the occupational therapist was involved in that process. So that was definitely an eye opener for me. And then also the PECS was a big thing to see that these are very competent therapists working in these centers. Um, They may not be able to get BCBA credentials because there's only one or two BCBAs in the whole country. And how would you provide supervision for everybody? But these are very confident therapists that are thinking on their feet and they're coming up with programs that make sense within their culture. But then when you take that back home, very rarely are we working in a homogenous group. We're working with learners from all different backgrounds and we have to consider what's important for that family unit and for their family culture and modify what we're doing based on that information. The concept of do with, not for comes to mind. And I think really taking that into families and groups is so important. Yes. Was there anything that stood out to you in Ecuador, Eliza? I would say like Dominican, the family and the the role of the family. And I think that's why community and like family trainings were so important is just that the role of the family is so important integral and the population as a whole, that it's so important. 
not so much stateside in including the family in the therapy. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of family, some mothers who are interested in doing skill core might hesitate because they may not feel comfortable leaving their kids for two and a half weeks. So how did you guys navigate this when you left for your trips? Eliza, do you want to go first? So I guess coming from a military spouse standpoint, my spouse at the time had gone on multiple deployments for much longer than two and a half weeks. And then then I also had friends who are female and in the military and deploying for long periods of time from their children. So I think for me, it was like, okay, two and a half, three weeks, that's doable. I think the big change I took is that in the past prior, like if I was even going away for a weekend, I had like lists for my husband of like, okay, this needs to happen here. You have all these freezer meals, essentially like, you know, hyper managing him. And then for my trip, I literally just like packed my bag and was like, I trust you and I'm leaving. And just trusting that he would keep the kids alive. And it ended up working out really well. Like he did actually figure out how to cook while I was gone instead of using all the freezer meals. And it actually went great. So I think it gave them some nice time together. Yeah. Sarah, how about for you? So I think for my first trip, my husband was really anxious. um, And I did a lot of preparation. I did like a social story for my one son. And I had tried to organize things to make it as easy as possible for him, but he nailed it. He was amazing. And I think toward the end, um, before we had to go on a skill core break with the pandemic, I think he was actually looking forward to me going (laughs) because it (laughs) definitely was beneficial for our marriage. It brought us closer together. And he also was doing amazing with the boys on his own. And he, yeah, he's amazing. Do you guys have any words of encouragement for other Skill Corps applicants who are mothers? I would say if you're concerned about it, try to pick a time of year that's the least stressful. You're probably not going to want to pick months that are like going back to school or adjusting to school. You're probably going to want to look at what months are going to be the least stressful on your family. And then my first uh, couple trips, I picked the Dominican because if there was an emergency, I would be able to fly home in a relatively quick amount of time if need be. That was helpful for my peace of mind. I didn't need it, but it was definitely helpful for my peace of mind. And then the other thing is, you know, have some backup contingencies in place. Reach out to grandma and grandpa, let them know that, hey, dad's going to be taking care of the kids for two and a half weeks straight. He may need your help one weekend um, to just get some things done because he's not used to managing everything. And you know, have some backup plans in place, whatever will help you and your spouse feel the most comfortable. And otherwise, just trust the process. They will be okay. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) That worst case scenario isn't necessarily going to happen, that it might not be as you're expecting, but it doesn't necessarily mean bad. Yeah. And that it's not like you are going on a deployment. You'll still be able to talk to your kids. You'll still be able to Zoom in with them. And that if something 
terrible does happen, that yes, you can fly back. Yeah. All right, ladies, I'd like to close with one last question. So we've talked about some advice for moms. Now, what tips would you give to other people, just anyone who's interested in doing Skill Corps, but maybe hasn't quite filled out that application? Like they're sitting, looking at the website, wondering what all this is about. What would you say to them? I would say that it is the best investment you can make in yourself. While you are volunteering and you are doing good, you are also going to see your own skill set improve dramatically. As long as you go into it with an open mind and you're flexible, I really highly recommend it. I almost feel like it should be a requirement (laughs) for you to sit for your exam because it made such a huge difference in the way that I practice and the way that I think and the way that I work with staff. I think it's one of the best things that you could do for yourself. That the changes that occur might not even be ones that you are expecting and that it will challenge you, but it will challenge you in a good way. And that you'll end up leaving and being like, wow, I never expected to learn that or learn that about myself. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for opening up and sharing your stories with us. You know, I think this will be such a helpful episode, not just for moms, but also our neurodiverse community, like people, self-advocates who are interested in doing Skill Core and seeing what it's all about for them. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. If you're a professional working in the field of autism education or a self-advocate wanting to share your life experiences, SkillCore is an opportunity you don't want to miss. Work alongside our global autism partners to help ensure that all autistic individuals around the world have access to quality education and services. For more information about our SkillCore program, you can listen to Episodes 4, 17, and 53, featuring roundtable discussions with other members of our community. We're currently accepting applications for SkillCore 2022. Begin your journey today at globalautismproject.org forward slash SkillCore. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.